Good morning. Good morning. Much better, thank you. Welcome to worship. So whether you're here in West Auditorium, in the East Auditorium, or joining us online this morning, we welcome you. My name is Pastor Rick, Rick Grace. I'm part of the pastoral team, and it is good for us to be together this morning. I, as most of you know, I have the privilege of relating to our growing DHF family of churches. But for this morning, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. So if you got your Bibles and want to turn there, go ahead, and we'll get there in just a few minutes. But first, I want to let you know a secret about me, okay? You ready? I love to shop, okay? I can't wait until my wife Nancy says, let's go to the mall, or her wonderful shopping center, or Hobby Lobby. You know, there's only one thing I enjoy more than shopping, and that's a good root canal. (laughs) Truth be known, Ken, I despise shopping. Nancy has learned over the years to change the questions that she asks me. The question used to be, would you like to go shopping? No. Will you go shopping with me? That may elicit a different response. But I will also have to confess, and I do this freely in front of my lovely wife, I have probably unintentionally ruined several of her shopping experiences. <laughs> this is supposed to be a monologue. <laughs> okay. I just absolutely find no joy in shopping. But if I do go shopping, I want to come away with the sense that I got the best deal ever. And I really like the two for one specials. Here a few years ago, I needed a new suit. So Nancy and I went shopping at Joseph A. Banks, and we walked in, and they had not a two-for-one special, a three-for-one special. Whoa, ho! and I bought three suits, and I hung them in my closet, and they're still there because I stopped wearing suits about two weeks after that. (laughs) Did you know God has a two-for-one deal for you? found in 2nd Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 5. It'll be up here on the screen so you don't have to turn to it. Paul is comparing the church, the Macedonian region church, with the church at Corinth, and this is what he says. They, that is the Macedonians, exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, that's the vertical gift, and then by the will of God also to us. That's the horizontal gift. So they understood that when they presented themselves to Jesus and claimed him as Lord, they got the bride of Christ as a two-for-one deal. You see, when you get the groom, Jesus, you get the bride. It's a package deal. We're in a series that we call Foundations for Following Jesus. 
And let's admit something right off the bat. In following Jesus, it's a whole lot easier to target the vertical dimension and know what I'm supposed to do in relationship with Christ. We're not quite as good on the horizontal and what that means to be in relationship to the bride of Christ. So I want to focus this morning a little bit more on that horizontal dimension. When you're reading through the, the book of Ephesians, and we hope you're doing that regularly as we go through this series together, I want you to look for and pay attention to the images that the Apostle Paul uses throughout the book of Ephesians. We are called such things as God's family. We are called God's household. We are called adopted children. We are called children of light. We are the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. There's so many familial images that Paul uses throughout this wonderful book. But let's be honest with each other as we get this started. You don't have to hang around the church for very long before you'll probably be hurt by church people. Anybody ever experienced that one? I have. I'm probably one of the few people in the audience this morning, either here physically or online, that has had the, the privilege of being fired by the body of Christ. Nothing says, Pastor, we love you, other than you're done, we'll walk you out to your truck. Now, that one hurt. Now, honestly, I hear more from men than I do gals. I'm never going back. But I challenge that attitude, and I think we need to challenge that together. Forgiveness and reconnection are an absolute necessity at that point. Timothy Keller, child of a wonderful teacher, pastor, who just went home to be with the Lord, expresses it in these words, and I love this quote. We are saved through Christ alone, by faith alone, but not to a faith that remains alone. Mm, there's that whole corporate dimension. But let's face it, in our culture today, the corporate dimension of our faith is under attack. I was sent an article this week from a sociologist by the name of Charles Taylor. He happens to be an atheist. But he has traced what he calls, in his words, a seismic shift in Western cultures, Western civilizations. That if you trace our progress, if you would, we have gone from having community as the ideal, where the clan or the family and the mores of your community pretty much ruled everything, to an individualism, and, I, and Taylor says, and I think rightly so, that has been the contribution of the, of the Christian community in, in what he calls their stubborn assertion that every one of us has value because we bear the image of God. Well, amen. I think in that he's correct. But he goes on to say that we have now entered into a period of radical individualism where the, quote, highest societal value is to set people free to live as they choose without reference to anyone or anything. Boy, that's a dangerous place to be. In a recent decision handed down by the United States Supreme Court, the majority of opinion, the majority opinion was written and I just want to pull one little section out of that majority of, opi majority of opinion. Let these words 
kind of resonate within you. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Are you kidding me? This gets to decide, oh, some non-essential things like my conception of existence, the meaning and purpose of life, the meaning of the universe, and the mystery of what it means to be human? I get to define that? No way. Unless I miss my guess, God is still on the throne. Hello? Y'all still with me? We're only eight minutes and 40 seconds in, okay? Don't, don't, don't leave me yet. There is no way I get to define those categories, which is why I am so grateful for God's two-for-one deal. I have the, the living word, Jesus, the written word, Scripture, and I have the bride, the body of Christ, to help me wrestle with those kinds of categories because I can't figure this out on my own. I need you. So let's dive into Ephesians 2. But pray with me as we get started. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Lord, you are our strength and our redeemer. And I pray, Lord, that out of my many words this morning, that each of us hears that word of God that we need to hear. So, Lord, we glorify you and we lift this time to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to start with verse 12. Paul wrote to the Ephesians and said this. Remember that at that time, that was their pre-conversion days. At that time, you were five things. Separate from Christ, you were excluded from citizenship, in Israel, you were foreigners to the covenants of the promise, you were without hope, and you were without God in the world. See, one of the things I need you to help me remember is just how lost we are without Jesus. Because that description, separate from Christ, excluded, and all of the rest of them, that's my sister, that's family members that I love and care about. I don't want that to be true. But I need you to remind me it is. And again, that's why we have the corporate dimension of our faith. To remember that people are separated from Christ. Greek word connotes disconnected. They're excluded from citizenship. You see, in the first century, there was no national debate on whether non-citizens got the right of citizenship. If you weren't a Roman, you didn't get any rights. There was no national debate. They were foreigners. They were outsiders to the covenant. They were without hope. Many of you will remember the prize-winning author, Ernest Hemingway, The Old Man in the Sea and other things that he wrote. He penned this right before he took his own life. And I will quote him. I have lived my entire life hoping there is no God. And now as I take my own life, I can only hope that there is. And then he ended his own life. 
you know, I don't know what it's like to live without hope. I don't know that I could do that. But the reason there was no hope is the last thing Paul says, without God in the world. There's no anchor. There's no moral compass. People that you and I care about this morning are lost. What do we do with that? Well, first we pray. And if God brought anybody to mind to you while we were walking through that description, he is calling you to pray for them and to look for ways to share your story with them. As God gives you opportunity, please, please take advantage of it. Go down to verse 14. 214. For he himself, that is Jesus, is our peace, who has made the true groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. He is our peace. According to Romans chapter 5, verse 1, once we have been justified by faith in Christ, we have peace with God. Now, Paul introduces the other dynamic that Christ himself is our peace, having made the two into one. Again, the vertical, I have peace with God. The horizontal, I have peace with you. Christ is still in the process of breaking down barriers. Paul uses an image called the dividing wall of hostility. So in your mind, I want you to transport yourself to first century Jerusalem. And here's this massive thing called the temple. And around the temple is a wall. And that wall became known in the Gentile community as the dividing wall of hostility because Gentiles could mingle around, that's you and I, non-Jews, could mingle around that outside wall. There was 13 steps up to the wall. The wall was a meter and a half or approximately four and a half feet tall and it increments all the way around that wall it was printed in bold letters, Gentiles entering here are responsible for their own death. Isn't that welcoming? I asked Pastor Wayne, how come you were here 28 years and there was never a sign on our wall saying, if you enter here, you're dead. What a horrible thing to put up. That's the wall that Jesus broke down. The dividing wall of hostility has been broken by the blood of Jesus, and God is still using you and I to break down the dividing walls that we culturally erect. Let me give you an illustration. This happened from my childhood. I remember watching it. It's 1962, Birmingham, Alabama. Dr. Martin Luther King was scheduled to speak to a crowd of about 300 people. And early on in his address, Dr. King, who was only about five foot seven, little guy, a six foot two white skinhead, Nazi, jumped up on the stage and started to pummel Dr. King. Everybody was so stunned they just sat there. King was able to wrest himself away from his attacker. And the attacker got ready for round two, and King simply dropped his arms. And it so disarmed the attacker, he didn't know what to do. 
So he just stood there. Well, by this time, the stage was full of people who are going to attack the attacker. And King did something absolutely remarkable. He threw his arms around the attacker and became the shield for the blows that were directed toward the attacker. And he started screaming at the top of his lungs, no, do not hit him. Pray for him. And when the crowd somewhat settled down, Dr. King and his attacker, Roy James, we know his name, went into a separate room there in the facility and started what would eventuate in a friendship and at least according to some accounts would lead to James accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior. Jesus still uses you and me to break down those dividing walls of hostility. See, right now this morning, we, each one of us, know somebody on the other side of that wall. They may be very antagonistic toward us. But Jesus is calling us to still break down that wall, to start to build a relationship between my heart and theirs that Jesus can walk across. As God gives you opportunity, look for those on the other side of the wall that you might bring them in. Go to verse 19. 219. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Look what happened between 14 and 19. We have peace with God. We have peace with each other. Here's the incredible part of our two-for-one deal. We are now fellow citizens with God's people. The remarkable shift in verse 14 is that we went from being executable strangers to being family members in verse 19. Only Jesus could have pulled that one off. Only the blood shed on the cross for the behalf of humanity could pull off shifting you in five verses from an executable trespasser to a family member. I, Nancy and I have loved watching the Chosen series. And if, if you haven't, go back and binge watch it. It is really good. Okay? But there's a scene in chapter 3. Not chapter 3. Episode, year 3. I'll get it out. Between Simon and Matthew. Simon the Zealot and Matthew. Now, if you're not familiar with that language, the Zealots were political revolutionaries. They were trained assassins. And the people that they loved to assassinate were those who had sold out the Jewish community by working for Rome. Matthew was a tax collector. Who did he work for? Rome. So Jesus, in his absolute brilliance, pulls a political revolutionary and a traitor and puts them in the same small group. And the scene in chapter 3, ah, year 3, I'll get it, just hang with me, it's my third time through this, okay, is when Simon the Zealot first figures out, first learns that Matthew is a tax collector. And his face drains. And the tension, it's like, um, 
going to get this guy. And then all of a sudden, verse 14 kicks back in. Jesus has broken down the dividing wall because he is Yeshua HaMashiach. He is Jesus, the Messiah. And whatever tension and anger I had has to flee in the presence of Jesus. We are members of God's household. We have gone from a nameless, faceless refugee to having a secure place at the Lord's table in the presence of God's people where we get support and encouragement and instruction. And if necessary, I am loved enough to be confronted about what is going wrong in my life. Pastor Rick Warren, who was the founding pastor of Saddleback Church in California, said something at a conference Nancy and I were at years ago that the church must grow larger and smaller at the same time. Larger through evangelism, smaller, because we're connecting with each other at a deeper level in small groups. Nancy and I have been in small groups since 1989, and I realize that that's before several of you were alive. <laughs> that's okay, I'm secure in who I am. I'm an old guy, I get it. We have dear friends that we hope to see in the next few weeks who live in Kansas when we'll be there again. We were in small group with them for years. And any email or card or any correspondence they send to us, they sign as Aaron and her, H-U-R. And for those of you unfamiliar with those names, that comes from Exodus chapter 17 with a wonderful story when the nation of Israel is fighting against the Amalekites. And Moses was told by God to go up in the mountain and pray. And as long as Moses stood on the mountain with his arms upraised, the Jews were winning the fight. Have you ever tried to stand like this for very long? What happens? The arms get heavy after a while. Well, when the arms came down, the Amalekites turned the tide. So Aaron and Hur came next to Moses, sat him on a rock. One got on his left one on his right, and they held his arms aloft until the battle was won. Love that story. My brothers and sisters, an average Christian in the U.S. now attends worship twice a month. That's considered normative in the church. Wow. I want us to be an abnormal church where we prioritize being together with the bride and we, we connect in small groups so that we can find an Aaron and a her that will be lifetime friends. We're going to launch them again in the fall, and I can't encourage you enough to get in. Chapter 3, verse 10. Paul writes, again, this is picking it up in the middle of the thought, that God's intent was now through the church that the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. God's goal for this thing called the church, the bride of Christ, is that his wisdom would be known even in the heavenly places by the way that we relate to one another. Now, scholars differ in their opinions. Are the rulers and authorities, are those demonic, are they angelic? It doesn't matter because Paul's point is we are being observed by both the angelic and the demoniac, and they are learning about God and about the church by watching us and listening to us. Why is that important? I was part of a church health assessment in Kansas earlier this week. 
last week actually now, and it broke my heart listening to how godly people talked about other godly people. The names that were used, the vitriol that came out. And it didn't matter if they were peers in the church or, or spiritual or pastoral leadership. Brothers and sisters, we need to be very careful how we talk about each other. Francis Chan, who is an American author and pastor, writes this. Every time you speak evil about a member of the church, it's like you are taking a sledgehammer to the temple. What does this say to those who are hearing or observing you? Wow. Are there times that we need to speak the truth and love to each other? Absolutely. But the key phrase is not just speak the truth. That's dumping on people. It's speaking the truth in love. But you know what? We also need to be very careful about how we talk about ourselves. Chan goes on to say this. You are part of a brilliant plan that started before the creation of the earth. That is why self-deprecation is as wicked as slandering God's church. We are belittling the creation of something God has planned and God has crafted. Ken, has anybody ever told you you are a brilliant part of God's plan? Yes. <laughs> Has anybody told any of you that you are a brilliant part of God's plan? Yes. Excellent. Here's what I want you to do. Turn to that person sitting next to you or behind you and look at them straight in the eye and say, you are a brilliant part of God's plan. <laughs> now do it without laughing. <laughs> Why do we find that funny? We are God's poema. That's what Pastor Adam taught last week. We are his masterpiece, his work of art. Brothers and sisters, listen to the way you talk this week about the church and even about yourself. What are the heavenlies learning about the wisdom of God in listening to you? Whoa. Okay. Let's conclude this. Go down to verse 17 of chapter 3, and we're going to start right smack dab in the middle. This is Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus. I want us to make it our prayer for First Christian Church. In the middle of verse 17, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have, to, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Now listen to this language. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Paul prays that you will have power together. Again, that's, that's the horizontal dimension, that you will have together with all of God's holy people, the ability to grasp what can only be learned in community, how wide the love of God is, covering Jew, Gentile, slave, free, black, white, husband, wife, I don't care. Whatever social distinctions we put up, the love of Christ is wider than that. It is long. How long it lasts for eternity? How high is it? It carries us into the very presence of God. How deep is it? It enters as Tori reminded us, into the depths of our own despair to lift us into the very heart 
God. But I love Paul's striking language. I want you to know what can't be known. <laughs> I want you to know what surpasses knowledge. How in the world do you do that? Throughout his writings, the Apostle Paul uses two forms of the same word. That you might know, gnosis, a, a, a mental concept of the love of God, but that you might also know the epigenosis, experiential love of God. Let me ask you today, what does the love of God look like for you? Is it strictly a mental concept? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been in church all my life. I know God loves me. Let's move on. That's the mental construct. Or is it, God loves me. I have experientially known that. I have felt it. I've experienced his arms around me. And only when I have both the mental construct and the experiential knowledge can I step into the fullness of all that God has for me. The Apostle Paul, being a Pharisee, would have known a very prevalent concept. It's a Greek word that is called haverim. And literally it means spiritual friends and intentional community. The Mishnah, which is a rabbinic commentary on the law, says this. I'm going to pull this quote up. Acquire for yourself a rabbi. By all means, acquire yourself a rabbi. Get a good teacher. But by all means, get yourself Haverim. They are the ones who will help you grapple with Scripture. You will learn from and grow with them. I am so grateful for God's two-for-one deal. I am learning to cherish my vertical relationship with Jesus deeper every day, but I'm also learning to cherish my horizontal relationship. I want you to be my spiritual haverim so we... As we grow together, we know in our heads cognitively, but we know in our hearts emotively, experientially, the depth of a love of God that surpasses knowledge. So here's the way I want us to conclude. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. And please understand, when a pastor asks, he means get up. <laughs> if you are able, stand with me. I want us to read this prayer together. I want this to become our corporate prayer for First Christian Church. So would you pray with me? And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Let's pray that regularly. Father, we come to you today as a collection of spiritual haverim, an intentional community, Father, giving you praise and thanks today for your two-for-one deal. Thank you for the vertical relationship that each one of us is invited into with you. 
but thank you for the horizontal relationship. And I pray, God, you are teaching us at a deeper level what it means to not only give ourselves to Christ, but to give ourselves to the bride. Because Paul says that's in keeping with your will. Forgive us, Father, when we've treated the bride as optional. God, it is only together in community that we understand the true depth of the love of Jesus. So, Lord, we worship you and we give you praise now in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we sing this last song together, I want you to take note as the team leads us and as we join in. All of the communal, the plural language that is used in this song. That's why it's such a fitting end as we celebrate our God.